Corinthians chapter 2. We're in a series right now in 2 Corinthians. It's a 12-week series. We're calling it Ambassadors. It's come, it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, you are ambassadors of Christ, like we are representatives of Jesus. So I want you to open your Bibles, because we're going to look at about six or seven verses this morning. Uh, man, has church not been awesome today? Like, everything, from the worship leading to uh, Seth, the prayer you led us in, Becky, to see you up here reading scripture over us. Uh, what an amazing day. I want to welcome all of you joining us online. Thank you for participating in this worship experience. Uh, I'm still blown away by our kids who led us in worship. This is way more than a cute factor today. Like, they, they led us in worship. I had a chance this past week at the end of the week, or Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I spoke in chapel at Oklahoma Christian University a couple of times. I was invited to be a guest speaker in about four of their uh, Bible courses that were happening on campus. I spoke at an event Wednesday night, so I've spent the last few days with a lot of college students. And there have been a lot of conversations with them about the kingdom of God and the mission of God and what God is doing in their life. And if you need somebody to tell you today, look, the kingdom of God is just fine, like it's doing great. The future of the church is going to be just fine. There are people who deeply love Jesus and are, are, are passionate about seeing the good news of Jesus spread. One part of the conversation that I've had over the last few days is, and, and, and you're, I think you're fully aware of this, and, and there, in some ways Christianity is on decline. Specifically, inherited Christianity is on decline. But first century Christians, is doing, or first generation Christians, they're doing just fine. So globally around the world, there are people, lots of people, who are meeting Jesus, surrendering to Jesus, being baptized into Jesus. Inherited Christianity is on decline, which means the church has to do a good job. Whoever the next generation is, that we don't just see them as projects, but we see them as ministers, as instruments of the kingdom. So what happened on this stage earlier with our worship leaders like, this is helping to equip and to help them know. We, we don't just hope you're 25 and you love Jesus. We need you to know that Jesus is in you right now. God is working in you right now. So what happened earlier, as you go up to some of these kids today and you tell them thank you, I don't want you to tell them thank you, you sounded good, or thank you, you were so cute on the stage. I want you to speak words of the kingdom over them. Thank you for leading us in worship today. Thank you for what you did in helping to point us to God today. So can we thank God for his work through our worship leaders today? Amen. Second Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 2, and I want to start in verse 4. Becky started in verse 5 just a moment ago. I want to start in verse 4. And I want to ask, I'm going to read this again this morning, and I want you to think about, as you see these words on the screen, or you hear them from my mouth, what are the emotions you hear? What is the conflict? Like, what do you sense the frustration is in the life of this church of why Paul is writing? I want you to listen for comfort. And here's how it goes. For I wrote to you out of much distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. But if, I, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but to some extent, not to exaggerate it to all of you. And this punishment by the majority is enough for such a person, so now instead you should forgive and comfort him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote for this reason to test you and to know whether you are uh, obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, 
our tendency a lot of times is to skip over the parts in the Bible, especially in church settings, like in sermons or when we're teaching classes, is to skip over the parts that are a little uncomfortable. Like we don't really understand what's going on here, so maybe it's too difficult, so we kind of just skip over it. And I'm very sensitive today for a couple of things. Uh, One, I knew our children were leading us in worship, and I didn't know if this was going to be the right sermon for it. But then I'm also sensitive to know that there are people in this worship experience in person or online, and you don't know your Bibles very well. And maybe you came into this worship experience, and all you wanted was encouragement from God, not to yell at your kids so much, not to curse so much. Not to drink as much as you do. Not to look at things on a, on a device as much as you do. Like, I, like you just wanted some encouragement to help you in your prayer life and in your faith. And now we're going to talk about a story where this guy has been punished by the church somehow. And now Paul's like, okay, the punishment's been enough. Bring him back in. So, so the challenge is to help you understand this text. And then hopefully apply it in a way where it is, it's, it's, it's an encouragement to us. I don't, I don't want us to be a church that just skips over uncomfortable things because we want that that is comfortable. But sometimes we don't like uncomfortable things, right? Because we're Americans, and that's, that's what it means to be an American, am I right? I came across a list just the other day, and we'll have fun with this just for a moment, of uncomfortable things. And here, here are a few. See if any of these resonate with you. Wearing a backpack while sitting in a chair. I've tried it before. It's not too comfortable. People watching you while you do stuff. When two people are whispering to each other in your vicinity. So you probably have those coworkers or family members that when they whisper, one knows how to whisper and one doesn't. Am I right? When the seam at the toes of your sock is not perfectly aligned with your toes and you can feel it in your shoe. You've been there before, right? Seeing a coworker outside of work. And I should have put right here, seeing your preacher outside of work. These are, these are always really fun encounters. Using the toilet right after someone else and the seat is vaguely warm. I'm just saying. I mean, y'all, y'all know it's uncomfortable. When you're driving and wearing a jacket and it gets uncomfortable, but you can't do anything about it. You've been there. I'm trying to teach a 16-year-old how to drive right now. Keep the jacket on, man. You'll be fine. When you have to go around the room and say a fun fact about yourself, but you can't focus on anyone, anyone's answer because you're too busy worried about what you're going to say. I love these activities, but I know a lot of you hate them. Eating in front of someone who isn't eating, I don't have an issue with that. I think it's just fine, all right? When people are singing happy birthday to you and you don't know where to look or what to do, and humanity has been unable to figure this one out for years, right? And the last one, running into someone you haven't seen forever and then running out of things to talk about within 30 seconds, if you've ever been there. So I'm sensitive this morning that we're diving into a text that may be a little difficult, but what we're going to do is we're just going to go verse by verse. I'm going to teach a little bit, and then at the end, I'm going to do three things because good sermons need three points, right, to try to help this make sense. In verse 4, and you'll see it on the screen, in verse 4, I just want you to sense from Paul the emotion that he feels for the church. Because what Paul writes about in verse 4 is there's distress and anguish in his heart with many tears because he doesn't want to cause pain to a church. And apparently there has been pain. Pain has been caused. And he wants to affirm them in the fact that there's this abundant love that he has for them. So this is more than a job. It's more than a vocation. It's more than just a letter that he thought he should write. Like this abundant love for them. I could follow a leader who were to write something like this to me. 
Like somebody who cares so much about our spiritual development that there's distress and there's pain. And when uh, there's disunity in the body, they aren't afraid to call it for what it is. Like we need people in our lives who, when there are hard moments and hard truths that have to be spoken, they're going to do it. They're not just going to sweep it under the rug. There's hard moments and hard truths that have to be spoken. And Paul does it right here. Verse 5 says this, But if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but to some extent, not to exaggerate it, to all of you. Now, what would be so helpful is if we knew the cause of pain. That sure would help us understand what's happening in chapter 2. Or if Paul would have like written to the individual and not just to the church, because there's a good chance this individual is in the church that Paul is writing to. So he's writing to a church and like Kip did something wrong. I'm just using you as an example. Kip did something wrong. There's punishment upon Kip. And now there's this message of, all right, now we need to embrace Kip again. And now you're reading this letter out loud in the church and Kip is right there. Where people are probably looking at him, you know, maybe elbowing him. Have you ever been a part of one-sided conversations? These are never fun. And sometimes when you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, it's like you're reading a one, one side of a conversation. This popped up the other day. Somebody sent this to me. Somebody said, hey, how was your day? And then hours went by, and the person said, my back hurts, in which then somebody responded with why, and their response was from having to carry this one-sided conversation. You ever feel like you have to carry one-sided conversations? And then maybe there's a one-sided conversation that doesn't really make sense, but there's communication that happens. Somebody sent me this uh, the other day. There's a mess- this text message was, I am here for you, in which the response was, thanks. I'm going through a tough time, so it means a lot. And sorry, I lost all my contacts. Who is this? This is your Uber driver. I'm here to pick you up. So it sounded like, I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. I'm You don't have to be in this alone. It's really just an Uber driver doing their job, right? And for all 27 books in the New Testament, I can make an argument that all 27 were written to specific people or specific churches, specific areas, responding to something. Even the Gospels are being written to people, specific people, who are dealing with something, and that's why it is written. And we're here reading one side of all these letters, especially with Paul, trying to put pieces back together. So in verse 5, it's, If anyone's caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but to some extent not to exaggerate it to all of you. Now, there are some who make an argument right here that Paul's referring to something that happened in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where there was a man in Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmom, and this was a, you know, just a crazy story. And apparently the church was like bragging about this, not bragging on what the guy was doing, but the fact that they were embracing him in the church. Like, we just love everybody, no matter where they are in life. And Paul's like, no, whenever there is sin in your presence, you got to call sin for what it is. But a lot more people don't think Paul's referring here to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but that Paul is referring to someone in the church who has opposed Paul in his ministry, or there's this opposition that is, that is playing out in a way where it's causing a lot of disunity in the church. So this person was called out for it. In verse 6, Paul says this, This punishment by the majority is enough for such a person. So apparently there's been punishment. The Bible doesn't use the word excommunication. For those of you who may not... I've been in church long enough to know what excommunication is. There are times in the life of a church where people have been excommunicated. Like, you, like we're asking for you to leave the body. It's a form of, uh, like something has happened to disrupt the body. But you don't read about that here. 
Now, this would be a lot different if here Paul was writing specifically to the individual. Kip, here's what you did, and here's why you need to be restored. But instead, Paul's writing to the entire church because he had called the church to action, and now he's calling them to action again. Now, parents, like, we get this whole idea of punishment. Like, when there is punishment... The goal, like you're not punishing people because you're, you're seeking vengeance. We don't punish our kids because we just want them to feel pain. We punish them hoping that they learn, like there's repentance, that there's some turn in their life, like they, they learn a lesson. So here, Paul's not saying, hey, you need to punish this person because we're seeking vengeance on them. Like they need to pay, they need to hurt. It's, it's hey, there needs to be some form of punishment here so that this person can experience repentance and be drawn back into the body. Now, as you hear me and you read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, what we're talking about today, like remember that you're reading about a context that was a very, like society and community mattered. It wasn't an individualistic culture. So being a part of a group meant something. Like you couldn't make it in life alone. This doesn't mean that in the first century culture, everybody was asked to be an extrovert. Like there were plenty of introverts who were still in need of community. And the way community, the way it functioned, especially in the first century world, is that if for any reason you were pushed aside or any reason there was punishment, you would feel the loss in your life. So you would want to make changes to be a part of the community again. So what would happen in the year 2023 if we tried this? Right? Because for them, it seems like the issue for them, what they were struggling with is when does the punishment stop? It seems like that's what the church is struggling with. For us today, especially in the United States, it's not when does the punishment stop? It should, should the punishment ever start? So for us today, maybe it is, okay, I'm not advocating today for we need more excommunication. We need to meet all of you at the door every Sunday and ask what the worst sin in your life has been this past week and then determine if you get to come in and worship or not. Like that's, 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 that's not what's happening here. But is there a vision in a church for accountability and a bar that is set so high for righteousness? that we're not going to be a part of pulling people down. We're going to be a part of pulling people up. Because if we tried to practice this in our churches today, especially in the United States, you know what people would do? They would either sue us, or they would just leave the church, go somewhere else, or leave the church and not go anywhere else. But listen to what Paul says in verse 7 and 8. He says, so now instead, you should forgive and console. You should forgive and comfort. The same word that Jim Hinkle preached about a couple of weeks ago that's found in chapter 1, 3 through 10. You should forgive and comfort him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And if he underlines things in your Bible, just underline some of this that happens in verse 7 and 8. Now Paul's asking for forgiveness and comfort. Now Paul's like concerned about excessive, excessive sorrow that this person experienced. And there is this phrase of reaffirming love that should do something for your heart and for your imagination. It reminds me of what Paul had already written to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, where Paul wrote this, if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Like to live out, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, in everything in life. Like, is that not who the church is called to be? So even for this brother, 
who had somehow been punished, sat in the corner, wasn't, wasn't allowed to attend the ice cream social. I don't know all the punishment that came on him. For him, there's, hey, there's sorrow. So we're going to meet our brother where he is. And as he's brought back into this family because of repentance, we are going to rejoice with him as well. In verse 9 and 10, Paul says this, I wrote for this reason to test you and to know whether you are obedient in everything. And anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, and I think the best way to see this in your Bible is what I have forgiven, if I have anything to forgive, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. This is not Paul playing the role of pope or priest or like you, in order for somebody to experience forgiveness, they have to go through me. It's not that. This is Paul who is trying to instruct a church So he gave them some really hard things to do in order to call somebody to righteousness or back to righteousness, and the church did it. And now Paul's writing saying, hey, it worked. It worked meaning repentance has happened, and now what we need to do is we need to practice reaffirming love. And then in verse 11, it says this, we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. All right, now, three ways to try to apply this to our lives, all right? And the first one is this. Satan's scheme is to disrupt and destroy unity. But I want you to see, in verse 11 of Satan's schemes, like I I think for all of us in this worship experience, online or in person, like there's a way you could apply this to your life. And I don't know in your prayer life if you ever practiced something like verse 11, like in the presence of God, to be like, God, how... How, right now, like, how, how might Satan be attacking me in my mind or in my heart, in my actions, my motives? Like, I think it's really good for you as an individual to think about this. Because what Paul's telling them is we don't want to be unaware of what Satan is trying to do in our lives. But I also want you to see this in verse 11. That to hold this in the context of the whole seven, eight verses that we're talking about today, is it Satan's schemes is written to a church in a moment where they weren't real sure how to practice forgiveness. And in any time, any time, personally or in an organization or a church, when we're not really sure what to do with forgiveness, a few things or a couple of things are able to set in. Resentment and bitterness. I heard a therapist talk about this once, that when it comes to resentment, it's usually uh, because of a specific person or a specific situation, but bitterness is the building up of a lot of resentments. So what happens in a church when bitterness begins to set in, because maybe we aren't practicing forgiveness or affirming love or reaffirming love well, is the bitterness begins to set in. And this is where I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters where there's the leader of the powers of darkness and he has people who answer to him. And basically what he told them was, because they were concerned because people kept going to church and this, this leader said, hey, let them go to church. Let them go into the worship experience. But once they're there, make them bitter. Once they are there, make them so cynical and skeptical that they'll pull everyone else down. So don't be unaware of Satan's schemes. And Satan's schemes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is about disrupting the body. So the church needs the vision of God to know whenever the body is being disrupted in an unhealthy way, we call it for what it is. Number two is this, accountability. When it comes to growth in life, very few things grow if there's no accountability. 
Like when it comes to, like, if you have a goal to work out, if you have a partner you work out with, it usually goes so much better. Because if you make a commitment to someone to wake up at 6 a.m. and to go running or 6 a.m. and go to the gym where that alarm goes off, you know you're not just going for yourself. Someone else is counting on you to be there. Same is true for a diet. Like when you have that kind of accountability in your life, and a lot of times in Christianity, especially in the Western world, it has become so individualized that we think you have your prayer life, you have your relationship with God, I'll have mine, but we don't, we don't intrude. But one thing 2 Corinthians chapter 2 kind of talks about is, hey, as the church, like we've got to raise a bar when it comes to the righteousness of God and holiness and purity and how we pursue God, and we need each other to do this. That accountability matters and how we pursue God together. And that we need those people in our life. I need these people in my life. That when I'm off track, when I say things that don't honor the heart of God, they're going to call me on it. And I'm going to thank them for it. Because they have my, my, like my, they have my righteousness, my, my relationship with God, my impact in the world. They have that in mind. And the third thing I want to leave you with is the church offers reaffirming love and communal forgiveness. I came across a story just the other day, and this did not happen in the Sycamore View Church, but a man who over a decade ago was unfaithful to his wife, went through a divorce, and he stepped away from the church for a number of years, and then he began to be plugged back into the church that he was a part of a decade earlier. And the pastor of that church sat down with him over lunch, and here's one thing the man said. Like I, he said, I wish in the church that somehow the church would formally recognize, like formally recognize that I have been forgiven and that I have been drawn back into the fellowship of believers. What he was saying was, someone who's been through something as public as I've been through, I feel like when I'm trying to plug back in the church, I'm just tolerated. And is there anyone who will publicly recognize the forgiveness God has extended to me and publicly recognize that I am back in the family of God. Like there are times that I tell people when I'm with them, there are times I tell them I'm sorry for something, and it, it maybe I'm saying something, I, like I'm sorry something, but it's nothing I did to them. Like when I'm with people who have experienced abuse in their life or abuse in the church or abuse by leaders, like I, I wanna offer an apology to them. I am sorry for what you have been through in your life. I am sorry when oppression has happened in your life. And now let's think about what forgiveness of God and forgiveness in the body of Christ looks like for us. So I hope that there's someone in this worship experience today who you don't know Jesus very well or maybe not at all. But what you hear through a sermon like this is that if there is a body, a, a church, who is committed to that kind of love, an affirming love, a reaffirming love, a love that isn't afraid to hold each other accountable, to lift people up when it comes to righteousness, that somehow this will pull you deeper into the heart of God, maybe even to a point where you want to surrender your life to Jesus, to be drawn into that kind of meaningful community. I think that's how Paul meant it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I am grateful to be a part of a church that does, it, like we're not concerned about being clean and straight-laced and just that we look the part, but that we're okay with us being messy and risky and that we don't have it all together, but that together we are pursuing the heart and mission of God.
I'm grateful to be at a church where we aren't policing the doors every Sunday morning, meaning that we're checking people at the door to see what your belief system is and what do you believe about certain issues and what are the sins you've committed to your life and how much did you pray this past week and based on that, that we allow you to come in. But once we are in, we're gonna count on God and ask for God to help raise the bar in our lives of what it means to pursue God. So come into this place, but know that we're going after the heart of God and we want you to be there with us. I want you to look at these two verses on the screen. Just for a few minutes, I want us to reflect on these. And these two verses are gonna stay on the screen, these few verses. And one of them is just to reflect on that 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, that if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part's honored, every part rejoices with it. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort this brother in Christ so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And if you are in need of somebody to speak a word over you of reaffirming love, I hope you hear it from me today. And will you give us a chance to speak it over you today? We'll have two shepherds here to receive you. Laura Moore, Shelly Eaton are going to be on the sides to receive you for prayer. I'll be up here to the left. We're going to go to communion today with these two verses up on the screen of what Jesus has done, who the church is called to be. And in this moment, there's not an emotion that you experience in your life that is not welcomed at this table. And for everyone in this worship experience, you are welcome to take the bread and the cup, which remembers the sacrifice of Christ. And we move to the tables together. We move from the tables that we may go out from this place this week and spread the affirming and reaffirming love of God everywhere we go. Will you bow your heads? Close your eyes. And God, in our lives and in this church, may we not be afraid to dig deep in the parts of Scripture that seem to not make sense and may confuse us a little bit and trust that grace and hope can come from it. And God, we pray that as Satan is so hard at work to disrupt so many things in our lives, that here in this church, that you will protect and promote the peace that comes from you. And God, I pray that if there's anything I've said today that doesn't honor who you are, that those words will fall to the ground and be trampled by you and not be remembered at all. But if I've spoken words that are true, may they sink deep into our hearts and bear great fruit this week because of you and for you. And God, for the bread and the cup that we take now, we take as a body, being reminded of all you have done and also being reminded that we are on this journey together. We want to help people see Jesus. We want to help people wake up to the goodness of God and all you are doing all around us. So God, we love you. We offer this uh, sacrifice uh, up to you right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.